You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Felipe Esparza. Felipe won Last Comic Standing 10 years and one month ago. Since then, his standing in the industry has only continued to grow. From his 2012 Showtime special, They're Not Gonna Laugh at You, to his 2017 HBO special, Translate This, and now his recent Netflix special, Bad Decisions, which he released in both English and Spanish, a first. Felipe's stand-up, which he has been performing for nearly 25 years, exhibits a complicated mix of joy and tragedy. The joke we talk about this episode from Bad Decisions is a perfect example of this. Let me first note, uh, Felipe's joke describes a, a graphic domestic violence dispute from his childhood. I understand this might be hard for some to listen to, so if that's the case for you, you might want to skip this one. In preparing for the interview, I watched the joke many times, and it's clear it being difficult was Felipe's goal. He doesn't want to cover up or gloss over the trauma of the event. However, he is able to find comedy, as well as pathos, in truly capturing the perspective of himself as a little boy and the contrast of being a child dealing with his adult situation. It is a fascinating piece of stand-up. If you can, I recommend trying to listen to where the audience laughs. So, here is Felipe Esparza. That's why um, I don't hit my kids, you know? I don't hit them, I don't yell at them. I don't, I don't even fucking see them anymore. <laughs> I remember my mom and dad fighting. My dad came home drunk and punched my mom in the face. She fell to the ground. My little brother jumped in. Leave my mom alone. My dad said, shut the fuck up, cabron. I was going to jump in too, but when I got there, I got scared. I started peeing on myself. No, 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 no. My dad just pushed me, and I just peed on myself. The next day, my mom had a fucking big-ass fucking black eye. My brother had a big fucking black eye. I felt like I wasn't part of the family. I just had a rash from peeing. I was on the couch putting fucking chapstick. 
I felt so bad. My mom was holding my brother like he was a hero. You love mommy, mijo. You wanted mommy to be saved. You're mommy's hero. You're my real son, mijo. I'm crying. <laughs> she looks to me, tu eres un pinche faggot, cabrón. Pinche maricón, you little bitch. Cry like a little bitch. I'm not a bitch, mom. I didn't know what to do. You're a little bitch, cabrón. That's why you got your ass kicked for talking shit. Little bitch. I woke up my dad. Apa! She didn't learn her fucking lesson. She's still talking shit. I was following my dad with my rash. She was trying to make me feel bad. I'm nine years old. I'm innocent. What do I know? The next day, my dad felt really bad. But not bad enough to say sorry, you know. He just took us to Disneyland to help us forget about it. Let me tell you, man, that shit was hard to forget. I, I couldn't even walk at Disneyland. I had a fucking rash. I kept walking like this. My mom was wearing a fucking neck brace. Fucking Mickey Mouse signed it. Whatever this, you give us all. Ponle la fecha, Mickey. Put the date. Memorias. I was traumatized. Donald Duck came around. I started crying. My dad said, how come you're crying? Because that's the way mommy sound when you were choking her. How are you faggot? You're not my son. And that's why I like cocaine. So I am here with Felipe Esparza. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. What's up, fool? (laughs) Uh, I'm sure some people listening will be fans, but others might be first introduced to you here. So I thought for some context, it would be helpful for people who have not watched your last special, Translate This, which aired on HBO in 2017. Uh, In it, you you told the story of coming to L.A. from Mexico as a kid. For for people who didn't see it, can you give them sort of a, a Cliff's Notes version just for some context? My dad came over first, and um, I joke about it. I say he started another family, then came and got us because it took a while for him to get us back. So my mother and my little brother and my other brother, we crossed the border, but we had passports, but um, they were not our passports. We borrowed them from our our cousins who live in the uh, San Isidro, California. Yeah, but one of the passports was for a, a little girl, so we said, "Uh oh." My aunt in um, Tijuana, Mexico, she said, "Why don't we just dress up your little brother like a little girl?" So for two weeks, he got my little brother was like a method actor. <laughs> he lived like a little girl for two weeks, wearing a little dress. They took away her GI Joes, gave her Barbies. <laughs> yeah. And he became a little girl. Mm-hmm. And we crossed the border and they asked him his name. He said, my name is Patti. And we're still here. 
Yeah. Um, around what age was it? Do you remember? I guess I was four or five years old, probably five years old. Yeah. So what were those those first few years in L.A. like for you? We when the the first few years we lived in um, by the five freeway, no the the ten freeway east mm-hmm. by Soto exit. I think that's um, Boyle Heights. Yeah. By General Hospital, and we lived in a I guess a studio apartment. I was so little. I just know that um, my dad would kick us in that at night. It was a small little place, yeah. I remember. Like kick you because of the space or kick the, you? The space, yeah. He'll knee yeah. us. It was so small. We slept on a, we slept on the same bed. Mm-hmm. We were so little. So let's talk about the, the, the joke that uh, you, you chose. Um, first, sort of just broadly, how, how do you write your stand-up? In the beginning, like most comedians, I, I, I'm a, I became a student of stand-up. I dug into it as far as I could, like to learn from everyone from the old days, you know. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of books. But I had just came out. I was in rehab, first of all. I was in rehab when I wanted to be a comedian. Like when I, I said, I'm going to do this. Uh, a Catholic pre- brother, like natural liberty type of guy, you know, like yeah. he, he's not a priest. But he worked for the archdiocese as a brother. Not, a, not mm-hmm. he's devoted brother. He's he um he gave us a, he told me, give me three things you want to do in your life. And I wrote that that I want to be a, a comedian. I want to go to Italy because I like Olive Garden, <laughs> and I want to be happy and sober. Yeah. So I went to, I went to the library. I didn't have a computer, and Wi-Fi was not for everybody yet. And I didn't have no laptop. Um, there was no internet. There was only like Net Juno and Earthlink and yeah, yeah. that noise. <laughs> so I-, I talked to a librarian at the library. I talked to her like she was my guiding mm-hmm. counselor. I said, listen, miss, I want to be a stand-up comic. I have no idea how to start. I could read, but I don't write. I don't know how to write stand-up comedy. So she took me to this um, section of the library where all the arts are at, mm-hmm. like screenplays and our our town, all these plays. Yeah. Then finally, I mean, we went through everything, man, like Jack Parr, you know, Lime Ricks. Then finally, one book on stand-up writing back in like 1995 or 4, mm-hmm. 94. It was um, Gene Perret's comedy writing step by step. And I read the book. didn't understand it because I read it like, like a book mm-hmm. instead of an instructional book. And then I finally read it with a note, in, with, a, with a paper and um, paper. Yeah. And there was little, little homework after every chapter on how to write a joke. And I basically learned from that book how to. Um, brainstorm jokes mm-hmm. which what most comedians could do now naturally without even thinking about it but as a young comic you have no idea how to do that like how did he just come up with a joke like that's so funny yeah. why is jay leno so quick why is cat Williams so quick to come up with a 10 minute set when he just was being heckled you know or 
how does um Mencia just write a whole bit, you know, out of yeah. thin air? I seen him, I seen him get heckled once and like heckled, and he wrote a whole bit about the guy just based on his look and his mannerism. I guess Joe Rogan the same. Mm-hmm. Like, how do they do that? I guess it takes time, but. On this book, I learned that if you want to write material about dogs, you got to make like a list of all the dogs you can think of without looking them up, you know, mm-hmm. without Googling it, you know, that's cheating. And then all the dog names you can think of. And then all the famous dogs you've seen on television and every funny situation you've seen someone do with a dog, you pretty much brainstorm in there. And then you, you pretty much try to put a, a joke together out of a dog. Mm-hmm. So just brainstorming brainstorming writing down dog names and and finally constructing material i think he used to write for i used to had to look these people up when i was reading his book steve allen you know yeah yeah he used to write for the tonight show before johnny carson yeah so he would travel with johnny carson and johnny carson would say hey um give me a 10 jokes on divorce so this guy would have to sit down and write down a the list again and come up with like 50 jokes so that's how i learned so and then so then what do you do now so that was like 25 years ago or so what do you is that still what you do i mean no yeah so what do you how do you write now what is writing now now i just um i I, on my phone Mm -hmm. my galaxy note 10 i um i have a recorder i used to walk around with a tape recorder in the beginning yeah i have a cassette with a tape recorder and then a mini disc and then a mini tape finally phones cell phones i record my all my sets on my phone i lose my phone i lose my life mm-hmm. and i listen to it i um i learned from a some comic named um, willie barcena mm-hmm. he was like the first mexican-american comedian to do the tonight show with jay leno like 12 times and he told me to to um to just um carry a notepad mm. and every time you think of a joke write it down you know don't forget about it write it down so you can remember later he said that jay leno told him that so that was advice that jay leno told him so for for a story like this you know where did this story live in your mind before you did on stage man that joke was i guess was in my head since the day it happened, you know, mm. I, rem- I, I, it, I the day it happened, I remember that it was an, a, a school night. It was a Tuesday or Wednesday. And um, my dad came in like totally drunk, like drunk as hell. And, you know, domestic violence started. Mm-hmm. My brother jumped in and my dad punched him in the gut. You know, I was thinking about this moment a, a, a day ago. And I, and I and I was holding back tears because I I remembered more about the situation. Yeah. And I remember that my brother had got his wind punched out of him by my dad. My dad was weighing like two hundred and thirty five pounds at the time, and my brother was weighing one hundred and fifteen. Mm. You know, so like if there was like when my brother got punched, you you saw the the. It looked like when Batman punched somebody, kapow, you know? Yeah. So 
and I didn't, I, I didn't jump in. I was too scared to jump in. I just peed on myself. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, what inspired you to tell, start telling it on stage? Man, what inspired me to tell it on stage was, I guess I'm sober now. Mm-hmm. I have not drank since 2009, or or did um hardcore drugs. You know, like all that stuff since 2009. So now I, I guess a person who's sober has to deal with his past, you know, mentally. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, I have dreams about it, but I, I, I guess that I, I've always put it behind me because we never dealt with it as a family. Like we never sat down and said, you know, that was wrong. Mm. We should have not done that. So. One night, one night, um, I'm at this show where I th- I guess you have to do new material mm-hmm. and it has to be something that no one had ever said before. And if the comedian knows or heard that joke before that the guy who runs the show, the host, that he goes through your YouTube, he checks everything, he starts listening to a joke he already heard, he, he gives you a light, it makes you get off. Yeah. So I, I said, I, want, I don't want to get off. I want to stay on. Mm-hmm. So I just started talking like it was, uh, I guess, uh, like I was a speaker speaking to kids about how to deal with stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I started talking about it little by little. And then I said, and then I, I said, um, I, 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 I said that part about that's why you got your ass kicked. Yeah. And then people in the audience laughed. Like they laughed. Because they're, la- they're seeing it not as a, they're not seeing it as a grown, you know, as a grown man who's lived life. Yeah. Who's seen everything, you know. They're not seeing it as a man who's saying that. They're seeing it as it happened, you know. They're seeing it as a six-year-old boy saying it. So they feel sympathy, you know. I mean, you would have to be there live, but you could see people like get sad and all of a sudden look at each other. They ask like, what the, what am I laughing at? <laughs> yeah. Why am I now laughing at this? I just felt bad for him. Now I'm laughing like I never gave a hell about him. And that's comedy, I guess. Did, did you, It's interesting. I, mean, I was going to ask like at what point did you know it was something you could do or what did you think might be funny about it is, you know, like it is a, a sad story. It came from clearly you processing it as a sad story, you know? Yes. How did I, you start? Yeah. My dad, he's he has never said sorry or I'm proud of you or anything to any of us. I mean, he might've said it to my son right in front of us to make us even feel, to make it feel worse. Mm-hmm. But uh, he had never said sorry for anything. But he, but uh, he has shown it in a way that's very strange. Mm-hmm. And I, and I'm, I'm not just saying that it's only Latino dads. It's every dad, every dad out there who has ever dealt with domestic violence or was beaten or abused or beaten by their parents doesn't know how to deal with it, you know, or how to how to not do it to his kids. Mm-hmm. Or how to 
talk to nobody talked to my dad, so my dad's not gonna talk to he don't know how to talk to us. Yeah, yeah. So my dad would always like this crazy. One time my dad went, he 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 came in and he was like violent and broke windows. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, we all went to uh, the zoo. Man, we were scared of every animal. Yeah. The only it's funny. So see that right there. See how I just said that's true. Yeah. We were afraid of every animal. Yeah. But as a comedian, I know that's not gonna be funny. Yeah. I know that that's going to make people feel bad. So I got to change it. So I got to say, my dad took us to the zoo right afterwards. The only animal we were afraid of him was him. <laughs> he was ferocious. Yeah. I mean, we were not in a car with him. We were in a cage with him. Yeah, Stuff like that. Yeah. So was it challenging to work on this? Yes. What, what were the faces and sort of how did you find ways to overcome that the challenges were um how to say it without crying mm. how to say that joke without crying because in the beginning you know it was like very personal and i was holding back like and then then i would finally get to the punchline, and then like i'm still like holding back and i'm saying the joke like it's happening you know like mm. so it took practice to go through the joke, sort of, it it starts off with, like, a joke, which is sort of, I don't hit them, I don't yell at them, I don't even fucking see them anymore, which is, like, a nice joke to set it up. But then once you get into the story, how do you sort of get that first laugh? Or what are you looking for? What are you trying to do to get the, the audience on board with this? This I'm, I'm trying to get the audience attention, you know, and keep them going with the story. Mm-hmm. So I learned this from working... Um, or a lot of urban rooms, a lot of African American rooms. You know, I always would one watch them and just like Richard Pryor. You know, a lot of Richard Pryor is in these urban comedians like Mike yeah. Epps. But I, I watched them. You know, and one one of the guys told me, Felipe, if, if you're gonna work this room, you're gonna have to add more to the story. You know, if you're gonna say you're gonna walk into the room, you're gonna make a, a joke about the noise you made walking into the room. You know. Like, you say, man, I was walking in a room, and you say, man, I was, I was stepping on broken glass. <laughs> and then you get to the joke. Yeah, so yeah. that's why I wrote that joke before, and then somehow I wrote, um, I said, I never see my kids, but my, my dad, one time he came home drunk, mm-hmm. like most dads, and then I just got into it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's listening to the special, it's really interesting. You, you have the part where your dad punches your mom, and there's like... A, there, there's, there's a laugh there, but it's like an, it's not, it's not a clear laugh. And then the same thing happens when you say he punches your little brother. There's like n- noises, like people are laughing, but it's almost like they don't know how else to react. You know, from your perspective, what, what are they laughing at? What does it feel like? What are you looking for when you're, when you're telling that part of the joke? To that, uh, to me, it feels like, like they, like they were tickled to death in the beginning. You know, like they're like laughing because somebody's tickling them. Yeah. But then you know, like you know, when your when your brother's tickling you, and then you stop, and then like you don't want to be, you don't, you want to, you're not laughing no more. Now it's being annoying, like ah, stop. Ah. So that's how I feel it's happening to the audience. Mm. But they also love the joke. I've had people walk up to me, 
He goes, man, the same thing happened to me in my house. Yeah. But the way you said it, I never saw it that way. But they tell me thanks. Yeah, which is it? I think the thing that's really interesting, which is you as an you are you're capturing what this looks like from a child's perspective. You know that next part where you like start acting as a kid and you're peeing, you pee yourself and you go like no 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 no. Is that is that what you think people respond to that you sort of like capture a sort of innocence while this sort of horrible thing is happening? I think the if I were to do that joke, like I said, like an adult, it wouldn't get a laugh. But I, I'm I'm showing like an innocence mm-hmm. of a child, you know, who's watching a a horrible thing happen to him, and somehow he got involved by not being involved, and now he's taking all the blame for for everything. Yeah, and like, hey man, what did I do? And now that when you mentioned that, it reminded me when. When Richard, when Richard Pryor um, would talk, would um, imitate a little bit, a little child, I guess, mm. and that would always get a big laugh, and you would get into it. Or when the first time I saw Howie Mandel's HBO special, when he did, when he did Little Bobby, yeah, I mean that was, I mean you're you're like feeling bad, but then you start laughing again. I mean, like oh my god, I can't believe I just felt bad for Bobby, and now I'm laughing my ass off. Um. So the the joke goes on, and you say, you know, my mom had a fucking black eye. My brother, too, had a big black eye. And I felt like I wasn't part of the family. Can you talk about that feeling? What did, what do you want to convey to the audience there? Oh, man. That really happened. Yeah. That really happened, man. Um, the next day, uh, none of us went to school because of what happened. And my dad was asleep, man, like passed out like a coal miner. Mm-hmm. Like somebody that worked at the Ford plant for twelve hours. My dad would work twelve hours, I guess. Yeah. And I remember, man, my brother was he, he did have a like a busted eye and shit. My mom too. They look like pandas. <laughs> and um and um I can't believe my mom said that, you know? Like you didn't even help. Yeah. Yeah, it gets it's 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 you can tell it's a real thing. I mean, like, what's it like acting out that part where she's sort of yelling at you? It's tough because I am the oldest, the oldest kid, you know. Yeah. And that's my little brother. But between you and I, my brother and I are like ten months apart. Yeah. We're like Irish twins. Everybody says, but I never met any Irish twins. Yeah. You know, my like my, my mom got pregnant as well. She while she was breastfeeding me, I guess. Mm-hmm. So there's that there's that rivalry between my brother and I. Like it was deep already, you know. Before that, before that even happened, it was already deep rivalry. Mm-hmm. Like my brother ended up going to um out of this situation because my brother stepped in and got a punch, got a, a a black guy. Mm-hmm. My brother ended up being the favorite after that. Like like after that day, I, I was withdrawn from the family. I guess. I mean, I was there, but not really there. Mm-hmm. My brother was going to a, a a different school than me, yeah. And um, he got he got on this program, and he went, he he ended up going to live in Mexico City. It was a rich ass family. I mean, this family was the rich. They're, they're living. They're, they're Mexicans who live in Mexico City. Yeah, yeah. And my brother lived with them for two weeks. My brother went to see pyramids, bro. 
he saw the, he saw my instructions. Mm -hmm. He ate lobster, and this, this is all behind my back. Like I never knew about this. Like, I, or else I would have tried to figure this out. How could I go? But nothing. They would throw me behind my back, and two weeks later, my brother comes back with a Mexican kid from Mexico, who's rich. Okay, yeah, who's rich, and. My brother conned that kid, you know, probably catfished him and lied on the application because there was no way in hell they would send a rich kid to mm. live in the projects, <laughs> yeah. you know? And like we were living in the fucking projects, bro. Like, we, my, that kid came to a, a America to share a room with three other people. <laughs> That's on my next special, man, but still... I'm going to talk about that in my next special, but that, I can't believe that kid had to live with us for two weeks. I mean, this kid was rich, bro. Like, he would go buy ice cream when he was hanging out with us just for him. Yeah. <laughs> we were at the swimming pool. This fool was laying down on the floor tanning, wearing Speedos. <laughs> Are you... Bitter about that? Yes. Yeah. Seems, <laughs> I mean, it seems like I have such strong feelings about... Like... Like, I mean, everything that my brother went on to, um, you know, he went on to steal my identity, you know, later on in life. Like when I was on Last Comic Standing, the, the NBC lawyer, private investigator of um, personal affairs, I guess. Yeah. He dug up. He, he came back and said, you know what, Felipe, um, you have two um, outstanding bench warrants for not appearing in court for two different drug offenses. And I said, uh, well, let me tell you right now, that's not me. I said, that's my brother. I think he stole my identity. Mm. Here's a picture of him. Go match the photos and don't kick me off the show. <laughs> and I mean, ended, up, ended up being my brother, man. Are you considering how much, you know, the pain or just sort of feeling you have around this? What are you, are you hoping the audience is? laughing at parts of it but also like like getting conveying how hard this is like you don't you don't want you know it's, it's clear that you don't want this joke to sort of let the the story off the hook of being just sort of like a happy story you like want it to be hard do you want it to be hard to listen to at points as well yeah i do because it's real yeah i want it to be hard to listen to because you know even though it's a a, a joke it's still real to me, you know. Um, I hope people don't, well, you know, you can't avoid that. I hope people don't take it the wrong way and say, oh, he's promoting promoting uh, domestic violence or beating up women or whatever, beating up kids. But so far, I've done that joke in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm. People laugh. It was all white up. People laughed. I've done it all over the country. People laughed. I've done it in Spanish, and when I do it in Spanish, I, it sounds. I feel like I get a bit of, a bigger laugh. My mom heard that joke in English when um, in New York City when I when I was wor first workshopping that joke, trying it out, like oh, a, a year and a half ago. We were in New York City at in um, Caroline's Comedy Club, mm. and my mom heard that joke, and um, every time. Um, she heard it. I could see that um, she probably re was reliving it and then laughing at my exaggeration of the story. Because <laughs> she told me, she she said, it never happened that way. 
She said, you wish we went to Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. But um, my dad would just take her to different places on different occasions, you know. Like, like he'll take her to SeaWorld or Marineland back in the days. Like, my my dad would never plan anything, you know. Like, I knew he was sorry for something. Mm. If we, like, that's why a lot of people like when you when you see immigrants in the beginning, you see them and you go, "Wow, they're dressed like they're going to a wedding." Yeah, you know they're wearing their best. They're did somebody graduate? Is there a quinceañera at? Is there a quinceañera at hot dog on a stick? Is there a quinceañera at water at Whataburger? Is somebody getting married at um? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, man. Cause see, what happens is that um, most immigrants or most dads, you know, they don't. They never tell. They they know how to communicate and tell everybody where they're going. Mm. So we just left church to be the to tell the truth. I wouldn't dress like I'm gonna um, film Saturday Night Fever or or the Wedding Singer, you know, mm-hmm. if I knew I was gonna go to a Dodger game. Yeah. So Disneyland was just sort of a way of capturing all of those experiences. No, man, we did go to Disneyland, and the reason we went to Disneyland because um, prior to not going to ever to Disneyland, my grandmother would always yell at my father. Mm. for being drunk you know yell at him like he was eight and we were in um on the west side my my grandma she lived by the by the olympic auditorium Mm. she lived over there on the west side and i remember she asked me have you ever been to disneyland i said never been to disneyland never man and i emphasize never in spanish nunca nunca and my dad came drunk with with me to um, the house, and she will yell at him. How can you be so? Irres- how, how can you have a a job, a family, and get drunk and never take them to Disneyland? Don't you know that everybody wants to go to Disneyland? That's the reason people come to America is to go to Disneyland. Yeah, they want to see Mickey Mouse. She was mispronouncing everything. Yeah. Get in the Miguel Mouse, Miguel Mouse, right? Miguel Mouse and and Daffy Duck. So like the most stuck in my dad's head when he was already drunk that day. Hmm. So the next day that's when we went to Disneyland and we were fucking shell shocked, bro. PTSD, man. Post traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, I mean you say it's you're traumatized at 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 Disneyland. Um the the Donald Duck part where you're sort of doing the voice and then you you explain why that's so traumatizing is is such an extreme combination of so silly and also really sad at the same time can you can you talk about marrying those two things and what you're hoping for that that part of the joke when i when i like when i first started doing stand-up comedy i would um like i said i I, like the the comedian that i i met along the way they all came from um i guess from set up punchline background you know so I learned from them and also learned that they they had a lot of tags, you know, like I remember watching um these eighties comedians on on Fox. They had like the Fox stand up comedy shows, you know, like I remember a guy named Tom Carter, you know, and um 
um, Bobby Collins, you know, these guys, they were like joke machines, you know, and they were at tags, a lot of tags after every joke, you know, and I said, you know, I'm going to try that. But what they're really doing is they're, they're dissecting their joke and stretching it out as much as possible, I guess, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Because the their goal, you know, that era of comedians, you know, those guys, they wanted to get on a Tonight Show. Yeah. So they knew that Johnny likes jokes. Johnny likes jokes. Johnny Carson likes jokes. You know, so they were write tags, you know, because I guess a Tonight Show is four and a, it's a four and a half minute set. So you try to like throw in as much jokes as possible into the set to have a nice set. But so when I write a joke, I try to come up with as much tags and as much um, jokes possible on the subject. Mm -hmm. I try to listen to the joke as the audience member first and foremost, and then as the comedian, and then as the comedian who's trying to help that comedian structure that joke. Oh, interesting. So when I get to the structuring part, I, 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 I write the joke as a coming from a guy who's been doing it for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I try to rewrite the joke in a way that um, it doesn't sound the same anymore. Or like, um, or like in a way that I could look at myself and go, hey, hey you just took my joke. Nah, I just <laughs> rewrote it. So... And once I get comfortable, I try to find a, 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 a comfortable spot where the joke is working everywhere, you know. I don't got to mm -hmm. change nothing. And then I start adding my my little numbers to it, you know. Mm -hmm. What else could I take it, you know? Daffy Duck, you know. <laughs> or or I could just say, I was like discombobulated, man, at the at Disneyland, like goofy. <laughs> I don't know what was going on. But that's not, that's not funny. No, Daffy Doug sounds like somebody getting choked. Yeah. So it's really just sort of like, okay, we have the true part, and we're going to find different ways of doing it. And you're like trying to figure out a way of heightening it where it still feels true enough, but also like pays off this sort of longer story of like what's a really big sort of thing you could perform out. Yeah. So the, so the joke ends with you saying, and that's why I like cocaine. Uh why? What are you trying to tell the audience at at, at that point? I'm, I'm I'm letting the audience know that I didn't choose to do cocaine at a party or peer pressure or any other elements that uh, the media or mm -hmm. they try to spin on you. You know, um, I'm just letting you know that this was never dealt with in my family. We never there was never no closure. You know. We're gonna put it in, a, in in our mind in a shelf, and later on, in our forties, when it when it when it, when it, we start dealing with it, we're gonna we're gonna scream at night and we're gonna <laughs> cry. We're gonna see a movie about a about a father and son, and we're gonna cry, like or we're gonna see hear that song that's that song by I guess Jim Croce. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but like growing up, I would not understand when. A, a man, a grown man that I know, a friend of mine, calls his parents every day, or mm. has to call his mom and dad every week, or me and my dad are gonna go fishing. Me and my dad are gonna go hang out. How old is your dad? Because I, I don't know. What, I don't know what that relationship is like. Yeah. 
We'll be right back with more Felipe Esparza. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. <laughs> Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. And we're back with Felipe Esparza. So the, the other thing I want to talk about in terms of writing th this joke is... You know, this special you're releasing both in English and in Spanish. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the differences of, between the two. But first, just what inspired you to to release the special in two, in two languages? I wanted to um, challenge myself. And when, um, when I was approached by Netflix for the English, I said, how about we do a Spanish one, two, for more money? No. <laughs> I, I said, let's try both. Let's mm -hmm. try to release both. Because I knew that um, in here in America, Netflix has like what seventy six million mm -hmm. subscribers, but uh, all over the world, like worldwide, you know, worldwide, it has to be one hundred seventy six million people, you know. Yeah. Because seventy six million is just United States, and and then um, every all of southern all of South America must be more. And then so on. So I wanted to, I wanted to reach everybody, and I also wanted to bring the American style of stand up to Spanish speaking audiences, mm -hmm. you know, in other parts of the world. You know, because I'm, I'm from Boyle Heights, you know, and like, you know, where I'm from, there's a little type of flavor, you know, a little East LA Boyle Heights flavor, like people around the world already know you know from watching movies like blood in blood out american me you know the lowrider culture mm -hmm. it has tr it has um transcended and crossed over to japan even you know people over there they like our culture i even have these two fans from morocco who know 
all the quotes from the Chicano movie Blood In, Blood Out. Yeah. And that was such a surprise to me, you know, and very cool. And they're from Spain. They speak Spanish, you know, but they live in Morocco and they're both Muslim. They wear the hijabi, you know. I never seen their, I never, I, I never, I seen their face, but I never seen their, the rest of their body. You know, they're, they're Muslim. That's their culture. Yeah. And I figure if they understand blood in, blood out, I have to do a Spanish stand-up comedy show coming from the Mexican-American perspective, you know? Because there's a lot of comedians from Mexico coming over here and doing specials, and my Spanish isn't that good when it comes to, like, professional Telemundo, CNN, you know, Galavision, SPN Espanol. Like, if you're speaking too fast... You need to slow that shit down, homie, because I speak Chichen Chong level. Yeah, yeah. And they're hilarious, you know, these guys from Mexico. But I'm, and I'm speaking from a Mexican-American point of view. If I don't understand it, there's got to be other people who don't understand it. So I better better my Spanish, and I better do a Spanish comedy show for the people in in Latin America who want to hear a, a stand-up comedian from the United States. Considering, as as you said, your Spanish isn't necessarily so good, what was the process like translating the act? I started off, first of all, um, there's not enough time, you know, to go into a a comedy club and do 20 minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, like the comedians I've seen, like Dave Chappelle and Dane Cook, Carlo Mencia, Joe Rogan. They work out their acts, you know, at comedy clubs in the city. But I don't have time, you know. That's good, you know, if you're doing an English special. Mm-hmm. But I was doing a Spanish one. And there were not that many Spanish avenues or Spanish comedy shows to pick from. So I called this comedy club the Comedy Palace in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And I asked the guy, I heard you guys have um, comedies in Spanish. He said, yeah, we have a, a headliner coming in from Mexico on Sunday. Sold out two shows. And I said, all right. Ask her if I could open for her. <laughs> like, for real, it's like yeah. a headliner. I'm a headliner in English, you know. I knew that. But I had to humble myself. And, you know, and I'm stepping into a different lane, you know. Yeah. I don't speak great Spanish to be up there trying to bump somebody in. Yeah. Stay up there forever. So I politely asked if I could open. And she said, yes, she was awesome. And I I got to meet other Spanish comedians there from Mexico. One of them was named um, Joel Sotomayor. Mm-hmm. And um, this guy was cool, man. He, he followed me to three um, English shows in um, Fresno and um, Salinas, California, and Bakersfield. And then uh, he transcribed all my stand-up from English to Spanish. Wow. And he just transcribed it, but once I read it, I said, wow, it's going to be harder than I thought because um, these jokes, they don't sound funny in Spanish. Yeah. It's hard to describe what that process is of like, okay, you have the words, but is it a way of explaining of like, what is the difference of like, okay, this is what it, this is what it looks like translated, but this is what it would need to be like to sort of sound correct. 
how would you describe what the difference is between what you needed to do to make it work? Well, my Spanish, it's a mixture of um, Spanglish and a thing called Chicanics. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a, a Chicano man speaking Spanish and English, Chicanics and Spanglish. It's a Mexican man speaking Spanish, but mixing the words up with English and making up words that only exist in your neighborhood. So on one of the jokes, I kept messing it up, messing it up. I mean, people laughed, but phonetically, I was saying it wrong. Yeah. I was saying, los robaron. That means the robbers, mm-hmm. when you translate it, the robbers, los robaron. But I wanted to, I wanted to say they robbed us. But for anybody besides the people that were at the show, they knew that I meant they robbed us. Mm -hmm. But to everybody else who doesn't speak, who doesn't know me, who are probably watching a show in in the Dominican Republic, they're probably wondering what does that mean. (laughs) But see, being that I speak more English and Spanish, and being stubborn, and being American, "Ah, I sound better this way. I'll say it this way. Yeah, (laughs) you know that's just the American attitude, you know. Yeah. I'll just say it this way because it sounds better and they already know what I said. Yeah, yeah. They know what you mean. But man, yes. That was a tough part. And also, play on words in English do not work in Spanish. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) How did the Spanish-speaking audiences respond to material differently? Did this joke in particular, the one we're talking about, play differently? Did you have to take it tonally in different directions? Oh, man. When I said that joke in Spanish the first time, people lost their mind. Like they laughed loud. Mm-hmm. Because I was doing a very short set and that was like my closer. <laughs> <laughs> so I left on that Disneyland part and I wow. said, Buenas noches, good night. And they don't know what they got hit with, you know, yeah. but I know that they wanted more. They wanted more explanation. What happened? Mm-hmm. But when I say it in Spanish, it's more personal to me than I think. Now I know it's more personal than when I say it in English. Like, I really, I feel, like, um, good about it. And it flows better, man, like a song. Mm. Was it because your your parents were speaking Spanish at, at the time? So you're, you're more in the language of actually was spoken at the time? Or, you're, like, you're more in that moment? I think because my parents were speaking Spanish and everything happened in Spanish, but also the Spanish language, very rhythmic, mm. r- rhythmatic, if that's a word, very, it's in, a, it's in a rhythm, you know? So, like, if I were to say that in in English, you know, like, if I were to sing what I just said in English, it wouldn't sound, it would sound good, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't be funny. Yeah. But in Spanish, I could say, um, you know, it just sounds good. Like, I just, from watching so many Spanish movies and also Spanish novellas, you know, Spanish soap mm-hmm. operas, I felt, uh, I felt the need, you know, and um, to throw a little bit more. You know what? I think Spanish people, us, were mm-hmm. more... Oh, we were very over dramatic, anyways. Yeah. If you watch our movies, 
If you watch our um, our novellas, all these women they're very over dramatic. So when I I got to do the jokes in Spanish, I felt free to be as over dramatic mm -hmm. as I want to because that's what I'm used to seeing in Spanish. That's interesting. So even in your first special, they're not going to laugh at you. You have a joke about your your dad hitting y'all as well, uh, where you say, you know, my dad used to be a professional wrestler in Mexico. So when he hit us, he didn't really hit us. So which was much more the style of the jokes you told at the time. Um, can you talk about when you wrote that joke and if that sort of was tapping into this, those same feelings and then also sort of like how you evolved as a comedian to be able to tell the full story? I kind of feel like back then I was just hiding behind my comedy, yeah. my true feelings, you know, of making everything funny. Like like when I said that um, my dad would walk around the whole neighborhood and bring old furniture and bring it home and collect it and fix it like MacGyver with duct tape. One time he brought a television home and that TV had 500 channels. But it was a knob from the oven. Yeah. That joke, man, it was, my dad was, I mean, that joke came out of um, the truth that really happened. And my dad was, we had a washing machine, man. My dad bought a washing machine. I don't know if he bought it stolen, used, or he found it. But we had a washing machine that only worked if you put two quarters in. Mm -hmm. So we had a coin washing machine in our house that had to take quarters. And then the, after the wash, the, the two quarters would come out. Mm-hmm. So that's the joke came out of that stuff too. In in general, why talk about these these darker, more painful subjects? Either why do it for what you want from your comedy, or, or why even for yourself are you telling these stories? I, I feel that I tell these stories now because, as a comedian, you know, as the most comedians, you know, you you keep evolving. Yeah. You know, like the Beatles were different from 1964 to 1971 when they broke up you know they were more what the Beatles were supposed to be you know that's what they wanted to be at first they sounded a little bluesy you know they sound like um, you know they pretty much took all the blues songs all the, all the African American songs American blues and made it rock and roll you know they took little richer songs you know and they, they made it sound like the Beatles but then later on, the Beatles became their own sound, you know, their own sound. Yeah. That's who they became, Sgt. Pepper, Lonely Hearts Club Band, you know. Imagine, you know. You know, all those, they became that, you know, the, the mm -hmm. White Album, you know. That's who the Beatles are. And as a comedian, you know, you don't know who you are yet until you become comfortable in your space, you know. And I, I have not reached that part yet in my life, but it's a nice, you know, voyage, you know, to say. Mm -hmm. It's a night. It's not about the destination, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's about the other stuff, the the travel, journey. Yeah. the journey. Does telling these stories on stage, what does it do for you? Does it help you process them? My stories first are, are come to life on my podcast. Yeah. Or whenever I'm a guest on someone's podcast, like whenever I whenever I was on when I was on the the champs yeah. with Neil Brennan and Moshe Kasher, that was the first time I think I talked about crossing the border illegally 
mm-hmm. and my little sister dressing up. And I, I think that's the first time I shared that story. And they were like blown away. I, th- I think Neil Brennan said, wow, there's like five movies in just <laughs> yeah. one hour of speaking to you. And he goes, have you ever thought about making that into a set? He goes, I don't know. I always, I, I never, I've been told to say that on stage, but I guess I will now. Yeah. But I guess does does telling it on stage and having people laugh at it or having people come up to you and being like, I relate to this story, does it make you feel better about it? You know, you, you talk about how the story came from the fact that you were just, this memory was keep on playing over and over again. Does, does performing it re- either release the memory or just sort of lessen its power over you? Does that make sense? I, I think it helps mm-hmm. to say it over and over, but I, I think the pain is still there when I say it or uh, a little memory of it comes back that I don't remember, you know, something different about it. You know, like if I were to remember something about it, like now, now I remember now is that my other brother, the one that dressed up like Patti, the one that had to dress up a little mm-hmm. girl, he used to wear his pants all the time. Yeah. After like, even though he was not involved or he didn't see, he he didn't see, saw it, but he, he, he didn't see the, the violence on him, like he he was not hit by anybody, or he was not treated by anybody bad, but he saw everything happen. Mm-hmm. Now, when I think about it, you know, I'm, I'm thinking right. Well, he, he did wear his pants all the way till he was 14, you know, and that was never dealt with either. And what do you hope f- for the audience when they take in a story like this? And what what do you hope they they think about you or think about the situation or, you know, what is your relationship? to to audiences in general i hope um people can watch the whole set and laugh and then come back to that part and say wow this was a hard to watch but it was a healing process for me yeah i could relate to this and um i better go tell somebody sorry or i forgive you i don't don't know you were going through this or maybe or maybe you know when when they watch the spanish set Together, they could look at their dad and go, this is you, motherfucker. <laughs> or they could um, laugh at it and be a family. Yeah. You you mentioned your your mom saw this joke. In general, has your dad heard about it? Has your dad watched it? Um, what does your dad think about being talked about on stage this way? My dad has not uh, watched a set or um, anything like that. In general, how do your parents feel about being talked about on stage? My mom doesn't care. She got to be on Last Comic Standing with me, and we had a little moment, you know, on Last Comic Standing, a little cheery-eyed moment. So mm-hmm. she didn't like the attention that she got afterwards in public, like, hey, you're Felipe's mom. She just didn't like that that part, being approached in the streets. But as far as the, the, the material goes, she... Um, so they have Netflix, you know, and yeah. my brothers don't talk to her about the material, I guess. Mm-hmm. But she, she's seen the set already live. And um, I, I, oh, my God, when we were in New York City, there was a big crowd of people, you know, waiting for the meet and greet. Yeah. And then my mom was standing next to me. That's my mom right there. <laughs> what? And they want to take photos with her. Um, you know, considering... 
you know, they came to this country. I, I, I mean, I've, I've heard you talk about in the hopes of giving you and your siblings more opportunities. How, how have they appreciated your success? My mom was very happy, you know, so was my dad. My dad, like, he, he had the little, uh, I know, he, I know, even though he, he never said it, I know that he always had, like, the vibe, you know, like, mm-hmm. the the buzz, you know, like, you know, like, the Hollywood buzz, you know, <laughs> like, when you were a little kid, you would watch a cartoon or somebody that has, like, Hollywood buzz, yeah. and they go to Hollywood, and when I was a kid, I would watch cartoons about little dogs going to Hollywood and becoming famous, and then not making it, and then the little little hobos. Mm-hmm. That's always the fear. But my dad always—I know that he always wanted to be somebody mm-hmm. in film, but not never like told anybody because I remember being in El Paso, featuring for Joy Medina, featuring, and I get a call from somebody. He goes, "Dude, put it on channel fifty-two." Mm-hmm. And I said, I went to El Paso. There is no 52 over here. He goes, your father is on television with your brother on the people's court, but the Mexican version of it. Mm-hmm. And I look, and I told him, that's not my brother, but that is my dad. And they're both lying. And they got they got paid to be on television. Um, you You won last comic standing 10 years ago. To this month, um, wow! In August, yeah, and it came about fifteen years into you doing comedy. How has the last ten years compared to the the first fifteen? Well, the last ten years, I didn't have to worry about paying my rent or count my money, you know, or count my gigs, you know, for the next gig. Yeah, like before last comic standing, I was hustling, man. I was, I was making like sometimes $50 a show to do 10 minutes, sometimes 100 sometimes 150 200 if I'm lucky. But I would line up my shows all week just to have enough money to pay my rent. Mm-hmm. And so I would have to do like 15 shows a week. I would do like, <sighs> I would, would do like the Laugh Factory on Latino night on Monday. Mm-hmm. And Tuesday night, I would have to go to a place in the in the ghetto of Rosemead called Casa Latina. And let me tell you, man, that place was tough. Like, I would see people like J.B. Smooth, Ralphie May, Jay Lamont, Cat Williams. But he was not called Cat Williams. Mm-hmm. He was called Cat in a Hat. <laughs> and these guys would walk in there, man, and monsters, bro. Yeah. And I would walk in there, too, just to make 50 bucks. And then on Wednesdays, I had my own spot, you know, where I made 75 bucks. And I would mm-hmm. book comedians, you know, like one time um, Sean Waynes came, Paul Rodriguez. So many great comedians came through there. This is all in the hood, man, the east side. Yeah. Then Thursday, there was a comedian named um, Rudy Moreno who had the Normandy Casino. And some other people had other shows in... Um, in Inglewood, I remember this guy had a show in Inglewood that paid a hundred dollars. Friday nights, Laugh Factory, ten o'clock show, mm-hmm. and midnight show. I would hustle, man. I did have, I did not have a car. I remember, I would have to catch a bus to the comedy store, one bus to do the um the eight o'clock show, and then right there on Fairfax, 
I would have to catch a bus to Hollywood Boulevard to catch the um, the train mm-hmm. to downtown LA, and then another train to Long Beach to do the Long Beach ten o'clock show, and then I would come back to the Laugh Factory to do the <laughs> midnight show with Tiffany Haddish, Brian Holtzman, Leslie Jones, yeah, and um, all these comics who are pretty much doing so well now. Good for them. Knowing that, knowing all of that, what has it been like these last 10 years? Man, I, I still like performing. I still like to hustle, man. I love stand-up more. And it's, it's more fun now because people are showing up. Um, I was surprised like when I, when I was um, on Last Comic Standing. Like As soon as I won Last Comic Standing, things changed. I was doing the Last Comic Standing tour which was 85 cities all over America. And then I would meet everybody up at the laugh at the at the big show for the last comic standing tour. And man, when I I did a show in DC, that show sold out in a day. Mm-hmm. And then I have never done that before. I remember when the manager of the of the improv, she gave me my check. She told me that um she doesn't make that in a month. No, she doesn't make that in a week. Yeah. And I said, well, you better get start, start writing jokes, lady, or move to Hollywood and become an agent. Because that's how managers who work at comedy clubs do it. Yeah. What's been more fun, just having an audience and knowing th- the comfort that you can actually sort of not worry about hustling to just get shows, but you can focus on hustling to have your material be what it needs to be? I think what's been more fun is the traveling and doing a bunch of shows all over the country mm-hmm. and to go to places that I would never thought I would go and people actually would know that I'm coming there. Like I did a show and for 500 people in a small little theater in Hilo, Hawaii. Hilo. Yeah. Like I did a show in Honolulu with Paul Rodriguez like the next day, but I flew into Honolulu. I did press. And the next day I went to Hilo to do a comedy show. And man, like there was a lot of people there, like a lot of people. I, I, I cannot believe there were people actually who moved from my neighborhood who live in mm-hmm. Hilo. You, you mentioned um, all those years ago writing down three goals and one was to do stand up and one was to be happy uh, with what you're doing. The heavy. Have you done all of them? Have you been to Italy? Or at least are you happy? No, I, I have not gone to Italy, but I have listened to um, The Godfather and Audible two times mm-hmm. and seen the movie a bunch of times. And I'm trying to pick up um, a little bit of Italian there and here and there. But for the most part, I'm very happy. You know, um, I do what I can you know, to help out young comics. I tell young comics now that um, I can't give you I can't give you the advice that was given to me, because when I was given the advice that I was given, it was for, for a different time mm-hmm. in comedy, in a different time in our world, in a different a different mindset of the kind of person that I was. But I'll tell you this right now: if I was to give you advice, I'll tell you this: you you have more tools than I ever had when I first got started. Mm. And the person that gave me that advice 
couldn't fathom the much of tools you have right now. Like, you don't have to go out to look for a tape recorder. It's already <laughs> on your phone. You don't have to go buy a fucking camcorder. It's already on your phone. You don't have to go to the yellow pages to look for an agent. It's on your phone. Yeah. You know, when I bought a, I bought a comedy book, Jess. Yeah. I bought a comedy book that that's that the librarian told me also <laughs> yeah. when I went back the following week. It was called How to Write Funny, How to Be Funny, and How to Make How to How to Make Money Out of Being Funny. Mm-hmm. And in that comedy book, it broke down the genres of um comedy. Like it had one section, Deadpan, and it was Stephen Wright and whoever was a a, a deadpan comedian of the time and then on the other side it had um satirical satirical or whatever yeah, yeah 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 comedians it had all the ones you know and then it had you know what, what what was great about that comedy book on the back of the book it had all the comedy clubs hmm. and it had the numbers and the bookers and the agents of where to send your your comedy tape to and now and now look at you <laughs> your tape is your your tape will be seen by the world yes man <laughs> uh so now it's time for our final segment which is the laughing round it's like a lightning round but because it's comedy it's a, a laughing round do you have a favorite joke joke like a street joke just like a or a dad joke 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 my favorite joke joke is um this one did you hear that when the guy who wrote the song the hokey pokey when he died they couldn't close his coffin every time they put a right foot in he put a left foot out <laughs> um is there a joke that you wish you could steal in so much as it's uh it it's another comedian's joke that you saw and you're like I wish I had that joke but it's not like you'd get caught for stealing it's it's another dimension where everything's the same but you have this joke. Oh man, there's so many there's so many jokes that people write that I feel like damn, I was just talk, talking about that but um I guess I would say that um Ronnie Dangerfield's punchlines, you know? Yeah. And whatever Mitch Hedberg has written, those are all great jokes. But off the top, I would have to say that um, um, Hannibal Burris' mm-hmm. j- joke about um, his favorite burrito burrito restaurant closing, his taco truck restaurant, his favorite, his favorite taco restaurant closing. Yeah, that one. Um, do you do any impersonations that you never have an opportunity to do but i will give you an opportunity if you have any um i don't, I don't do impersonations but when i i do try to when when i was learning how to learning spanish or getting used to spanish i was watching a lot of um pablo escobar mm-hmm. so when i would do a set my set would sound like pablo escobar <laughs> it's like pablo escobar doing stephen stand-up Rancho. comedy <laughs> but i know um, do you have a comedy crush? A person in comedy whose comedy you have a crush on? It's not romantic. You just like their comedy a lot. Yes, there's a comedian out of Canada named um, Stuart Francis. Mm-hmm. What do you like about it? Oh man, his comedy is ridiculous, bro. 
he had a he he was he had a a, a a running gag about his father taking them swimming, and he had a joke about he says you never know how close a frisbee is till it hits you. <laughs> and last one, do you have a joke that that didn't work um, that you've tried over and over again that you really thought was funny but didn't work? Maybe you've given up on it, but you you'll go to your grave being like I was wrong. I mean, they're wrong. I was right. This joke is funny. Oh man, I can't. After bag, I can't think of any right now. But one joke that has always worked that never no one likes. What joke you don't like? It never works. Oh, an abortion joke I have. <laughs> we cut it off the special. We cut it off the set because I had said that I went to a. a, a, a well, I liked the joke. I said <laughs> I, I went to a, a. I went to a gender revealing party, mm-hmm. and um, I tried out this joke by the way at the comedy store right after. Just so Nick and I figured like, wait a minute, I have ten jokes that I could try out now since he's la- they're laughing yeah, yeah. at his stuff, yeah. right? So I went, I said I went to a gender revealing party and when I got there, the girl said she got an abortion, <laughs> and th- and they want a balloon blew up and spray blood at everybody. <laughs> yeah, I could see that that night not be for all audiences. Yeah, but that is it. Thank you so so much. Thank I'm you gonna- very much. Hope it comes out good, man. Have fun. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch They're Not Gonna Laugh at You and Bad Decisions on Netflix. Follow Felipe on Twitter, at FunnyFelipe, and on Instagram, at Felipe Esparza Comedian. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Hannah Rosen, and Camila Salazar. Gotcha Mishrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with another comedian and another joke. Have a good one. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.